Good morning. It is a joy to be, open up, to be able to open up the Word of God with you this morning and to be able to just look at the, uh, as Pete mentioned, the things that are sure, things that are going to happen. And uh, we are very thankful that we have it written down for us. So please turn to Revelation 10 and uh, we're going to look at this chapter. So far in the book of Revelation, John has been watching the events of the tribulation from heaven. He has seen the seven scrolls being opened. We have followed along as we've seen the tragedy. We've seen the seven seals opened. We've seen the six trumpets so far that have sounded. John has seen all the turmoil, the pain, the wrath of God being poured out upon the earth and we've followed along and watched it with him. But however depressing the events of the tribulation may be, today and next time I'm with you, we're going to see that God is not without his witnesses in this world. We've already covered and seen the 144 Jewish witnesses that are marked by God to go and spread the gospel. And now in chapters 10 and half of chapter 11, we have an interlude from the wrath of God being poured out. It's a kind of arrest of the intensity of, that has been poured out upon the earth. And we call it a parathetical section, just a little section in between. Now you'll notice that this section begins in chapter 10, 10 and continues halfway through chapter 11. You see, beginning at chapter 10, we're now between the sixth and seventh trumpet. We haven't quite finished the sixth trumpet, we'll see that next time, and we haven't started the seventh trumpet. You'll see in chapter 11, verse 15, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded. sounded. So we have this parenthetical passage in between the sixth and seventh trumpet. Last time we looked, we were together, we looked at the, the trumpets five and six. And if you remember, last time we finished with the idea of how in the world can these people be going through such pain and suffering and seeing it all around them and still defy God, still shake their fist at Him. Just to remind you, just have a look at chapter 9, verse 20, and we iterate where we came from last time. It says, the rest of mankind in verse 20 of chapter 9, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorcery, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. The people have seen such devastation, but they remain unrepentant. And so I ask myself, why this parenthetical section? What, what is God doing, or what is John showing us through the Holy Spirit and through God in this section? And the only conclusion I could come to is that God wanted to show that even throughout this terrible time, 
even throughout everything that is happening, his desire is none should perish. He hasn't given up on them. I think I said last time, I, I, I would have given up on them. But then I thought, aren't you glad that God never gave up on you? I know I am. I'm sure I came to know the Lord later in life. I'm sure my first 35 years were an abomination to God as these peoples were. And I'm very thankful he didn't give up on me. And he doesn't give up on these people. His desire is none should perish. And so in Revelation chapter 10 and 11, we're going to see two important testimonies we're going to see one from a mighty angel that Pete read for us, and we're going to see one from two special witnesses that I'll be able to share with you next time we're together. So two stories, two pictures of God's wanting to save these people, to sending out messages to these people, whether it be through John and the people around John or whether it be through the two special witnesses, God is still desiring that they be saved. Today I want to talk about the bittersweet book that is in chapter 10, because that's what it's all about in chapter 10. Chapter 10 presents us two things. He presents a mighty angel, and we find out about this mystery of God and when it will be accomplished. And then we're going to find out about this little scroll that is held in the angel's hand and see how that affects us today and should affect us today. So Revelation chapter 10 verse 1, it opens up by saying, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was upon his head and his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed, it, he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. Now we have to understand all the way through this book, poor old John has been faced with trying to describe things he's never seen before. He's done a great job, but he always says like. Not like the teenagers do today, you know, like. He always says, like, because he has no way of explaining the things that he's seeing. He's never seen them before, and he does his best each time. And it's no different here. He uses concepts and descriptive terms to describe what he is seeing. And the first thing we notice in this chapter is he tried to describe an angel. Now, there are several mighty angels already mentioned in this book. You might remember that there was an angel that appeared in chapter 5, verse 2, the one who was looking for someone to open the seven-sealed scroll, if you remember that. He was looking for that person. Who can open this scroll? And we know now that the Lord Jesus Christ stepped forward and took the scroll. Or he may be a mighty angel, the one that appears in chapter 8, verse 3, the one who stood at the altar and was given incense so he could offer it with the prayers of the saints. 
But the Greek text is able to tell me and tell you that this was indeed a third mighty angel that we've been introduced to. The scripture says, I saw another angel, strong, coming down out of heaven. That another is the word alos, it's another of the same kind. If John wanted to see, say, tell you it was a different angel, he would have said heteros, he would one of a different kind. So we have a, an angel of the same kind that he, John is now seeing, the same kind that he's already seen. And so what some people have done, and I just want to clear this up, some people have said, oh, this is Jesus Christ. This must be Jesus Christ. Look at that description. It's so similar to John's vision in chapter 1. And yes, it is a similar description. If we had the time, we could go back to chapter 1 and we could see the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ as he was revealed to John. And there was a lot of similarities. But John is saying he saw an angel that was of the same kind as the other angels that he's already seen. And just as fact, Jesus is never given as an angel in Revelation. We see him as a slaughtered lamb, a lamb to be slain. We've seen him as a lion. And later on, we'll see him as a conquering king coming in on a white horse, but never an angel. Now, you can hold differently to me, that's fine. I just think it's another angel. But like Jesus, this angel does have great power. And that authority and power is shown by the, by the symbolism of placing one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. So you can also see that this was a mighty angel. This was a, a massive angel, signifying his authority as he stands on the earth and on the land. Well, on the sea. And so John tries to describe this <coughs> mighty angel. He came down from heaven. That's how I know John is now on the earth. He's trans been transferred from heaven to watch what's been happening. Now he's on the earth. And he sees this angel coming down from heaven. And in, this ha in his hand, this angel had a little book or a little scroll would be a better translation. This passage is based on this scroll. So what's in the scroll? We're not told. I don't know. At least not yet. What did the angel say to John? Look at verse 3 and 4. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. So what did the angel say to John? I don't know. It just said he cried out. Cried out like a lion. You know, you think you might have heard a lion roar. I see a lion on the MGM movies. And if you've got surround sound, that's pretty, pretty awesome. I've been to a circus and I've seen a lion roar. But apparently a lion roaring in Africa or wherever lions are is an awesome sound, one that is terrifying and it just stops you in your track. And so this angel has cried out with a loud voice as when a lion <laughs> and he's introduced these seven peals of thunder, but I don't know what he said. 
what I do know, picking up on John's descriptive language, there's so much volume when this angel speaks that nobody could miss the declaration of what he's about to say or what he did say. Again, I don't know what he says, but it appears that he introduces seven peals of thunder. It says, and when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. What are these seven peals of thunder? I don't know. What was the message they spoke? I don't know. Well, now you're saying, aren't you supposed to be telling us something? I don't know what they said. And the reason I don't know what they said, because it says in the Scriptures, I was about to write and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Do you realize that if we were able to have their, their words, that we would have had four sets of seven of God's wrath coming upon the world? We only heard of three, and I tell you, that's bad enough. We've had seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. We could have had written seven thunders in between the trumpets and the bowls. But God said, I don't want you to write these. I don't know why, but I can imagine after we've seen two, after we've seen the, the, the seals and the trumpets, that it can only get worse. And it seems to get worse progressively. We've had seven seals, seven trumpets, that's loud, but then seven thunders, and the next is seven bowls of wrath. It's getting worse. And God says, John, don't write it down. Seal it up. Why? I don't know. I don't really want to speculate, but I think another set of seven judgments upon this earth to be written down, God didn't want it. But I can only imagine how horrible they must have been, even for God to say, don't write these down. If you've read the book of Daniel, you'll know that there was a prophecy that God gave Daniel where he said to Daniel, Daniel, this prophecy is going to be sealed until the appointed time. He says, it won't make any sense to you, Daniel. It won't make any sense to anyone until the appointed time. I can only assume this is the same. Seven thunders were sealed up until the appointed time. There's truth from God that he doesn't want us to know yet. But I think if you went into Kurong, you'd find that there's at least one book on what the seven thunders are. Don't get it. Don't get it. We don't know. I just want to read Deuteronomy 29, 29 to you. It's a, it's a lovely verse for us to just remember. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. There are things we're not to know. 
The secret things belong to the Lord, but he has revealed to us in his scriptures everything we need to know. So don't go looking for what the seven thunders were, what they might have said. All I know is God said in his wisdom, don't write them down. We're to study carefully the things revealed in God's word. We're not to speculate about the things that haven't been revealed. Please remember that as you're reading the scriptures. Do not speculate on what is, could be there. Let's just study what is there. What the seven peals of thunder, th- thunder said, uh, we don't know. End of story. But I do know that it was seven more things that came upon the earth that we don't know about. This then brings us to the mystery of God. It's found in verses 5 to 7. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. This gives us a glimpse of what's coming up next in the tribulation. This mighty angel begins by raising his right hand to heaven and swearing by God, the one who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The emphasis is on God creator and this angel swears by God the creator. What did he swear? What did he swear was going to happen? That there will be delay no longer. And you ask yourself, delay in what? Well, according to the end of verse 6 and 7, there will be a delay no longer of the completion of the mystery of God. Then you ask another question, what is the mystery of God? This mystery of God that he preached to his servants, the prophets. Well, we don't know from this text. We are told when it will be finished, when the mystery that God has preached to the servants and the prop to his servants and prophets, we know when it'll finish in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel when he is about to science sound. The, the mystery of God will finish. So we need to go to chapter 11, verse 15, to see what the seventh, seventh angel sounded. Chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The mystery of Revelation 10.7 has to do with when the kingdom of God will be established on this earth. The seventh angel sounds loud voices in, in heaven praising God. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. Do you recall in chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 10, 
the martyred saints, they were concerned about this delay that God seemed to have been uh, doing. Just read, I'll just read 6.10. It simply says, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you retain, refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? That's a question that I ask today. It's been asked down through the ages. How long, O Lord? How long? It's been a cry of God's suffering people from age to age. How long, O Lord, before you come? Before you set up your kingdom? The scripture says that this mystery was preached to his servants, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets wrote about the coming of God's kingdom continuously. People just didn't understand. Even when Christ was on this earth, just after his crucifixion, his disciples were also confused, even after all the teaching. After the crucifixion, after his resurrection, or before Christ ascended into heaven, the disciples asked him in Acts 1.6, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, for 40 days he'd, he'd been instructing his disciples in the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Yet they were still asking. You see, he left out one point, namely the time when he'd restore the kingdom to Israel. But now we have an answer. The mystery has been revealed the kingdom of God on earth will be established after the seventh trumpet judgment. In fact, the seventh trumpet judgment is the setting up of the kingdom. I'll just read chapter 11 again, verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you had taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name the small and the great, and destroy those who destroy the earth. So after the seventh trumpet, there's now no delay. There's no delay in bringing about the final judgment, a final judgment that will end the tribulation and bring in God's kingdom on earth. Today, we're living in the days of delay. That's, that's the days we're in at the moment. It's as if uh, God's judgment is being stored up. It's like it's pounding against a dam and building up higher and higher this judgment of God. But right now, His mercy overrides His justice. We have a dam of mercy that is holding back His wrath, holding back what is to come. But He is merciful. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, 
but that the world might be saved through him. This is the delay. This is called the church age. It's a delay, but let me tell you, one day there will be no more delay. One day the seventh trumpet will sound and God will reign on this earth. One day there will be no more delay and that, that verse 17 will change because it says, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but it, it will change because Jesus Christ will be sent into the world to judge it. This is a time of delay. But one day, Jesus Christ will return and he will judge it. And today there are people saying, that'll never happen. Maybe you sit here this morning, maybe you're not a believer and you're thinking, oh, I don't think it's going to happen. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 says this, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? You know, if you go out in the world today and talk to the people who aren't Christians and you're told, you tell them that Jesus Christ, according to the Scriptures, is going to come back to judge the world, they're going to laugh at you. That's how the Bible says they're going to react anyway. And so God declares there will be no more delay. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. What are you going to do about that knowledge this morning? I know as a Christian, I'm encouraged. I won't be there during this tribulation. But I'm encouraged to know that after a certain point of time, the Lord will set up his kingdom. But I'm thinking more of people here this morning who've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. If you didn't understand what Jordan was talking about as we, we take the bread and the wine, that Jesus Christ died, that we might live. I'm worried about you. I really am. I'm concerned. Because uh, whether you believe it or not, if the Lord comes today, you will be in the tribulation. Whether you make it to the seventh trumpet, I don't know. Because there's a lot of death we've already seen. A third of the world's population has, has already gone. But I worry about you. And then I think 8 to 11 is what we as Christians should be doing today. I think the first part that we've already saw, saw is the idea that the mystery is going to be finished, finalised. God's kingdom will be set up on earth. But what are we going to do about it? What was John to do about it? Can he do anything about it? Well, I think that's where this little book comes in. What are we Christians to do? Verse 8. 
Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. I will make, it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. What is this all about? Is this just for John? Yeah, I'm not convinced it is. Verses 11 says, And they said to me, You must prophesy again. John didn't have much chance to prophesy. He was held captive on the Isle of Patmos. He wasn't going to be able to prophesy very much at all. We have a symbolism of eating the scroll in a way of indicating, and it is a way of indicating, that the truth written on that scroll becomes understood and personal. Now, I'm not saying that you have to go away and make this your lunch. You're not going to barbecue the Bible and eat the pages. This is a symbol. (coughs) The idea is that it wasn't enough for John or for us just to see the Bible, just to see the scroll, or even to know the contents, or even to know its purpose. That is not enough for us as Christians. It wasn't enough for John himself. He had to receive it into his inner being. You see, that's what happens when you eat food, isn't it? That food becomes you. And if you're like me, it'll become visible on the outside soon. But that's the symbolism. When John eats the scroll, it's a symbol that he's taking into himself the Scriptures and becoming personally involved with the Scriptures. See, it's no good for us as Christians just to own a Bible or to even know its contents or even to know its purpose. There are many theologians out there who know these Scriptures better than I do. There are many... Satan himself knows this scripture better than I do. But we are to not just read the scripture and understand it, we are to take it in. We are to, every precept of our life is to be lived through this word of God. It is to become a part of us so that whenever we make a decision, whatever we do, that (coughs) scripture that is in us will give us the answer. It'll be seen through how we live, how we walk in this this world. But there's nothing new in the book of Revelation. I've said that before. So I'll ask the question, where else can you recall this idea of eating a scroll? You might like to turn to Ezekiel with me. I'd like to spend a little bit of time in Ezekiel to see how this This idea of eating the scroll is so important for us. Ezekiel chapter 2. (coughs) 
Ezekiel chapter 2, and I'll read a part of it for you. I'm going to start at verse 9. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Then Ezekiel went out and delivered the message to Israel, and later in chapter 3, verse 14, he said this, So the Spirit lifted me up, and, I, and it took me away, and I was embittered in the rage of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. This is similar to what John is experiencing in Revelation 10. It's similar to what the angel is, or what God is telling John to do. God's word contains sweet promises and assurances. We all know that. But it contains bitter warnings and it contains prophecies of judgment. And it's the very same for us. We need to eat the scriptures. It is to become part of us. And some of it will be sweet in the mouth. When we read of the redemption and the destiny that we have of believers, when we read the wonderful promises that we have in God and in Christ, that we've been set free from the bondage of sin, it is sweet to the mouth, sweet to the, to the taste time of glory and of great happiness and we feel excited beyond description with what's waiting for God to fulfill in us and for us in this word. It is sweet to taste. And we meditate on the word and we read further and we digest it and we begin to understand that God has a plan to use us to prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And we find that the message isn't sweet anymore. It's bitter, like the book of Revelation. And so as John takes the message of this little scroll in, he eats it, he understands it, and he becomes personally involved in it. It becomes to turn sour. And it turns sour because we come to realize that we're a part of the judgment as well. Because we too must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. We need to not just know this scripture, we need to ingest this scripture. We Christians of the 21st century are the same as John. You see, I don't enjoy teaching the wrath of God poured out during the tribulation. It's not something that's enjoyable. I don't enjoy preaching on one quarter of the world's population being killed at the sixth trumpet. I don't enjoy telling non-Christians even here this morning that the tribulation waits for you. It's not an enjoyable thing to say that. But I do it because it is the Word of God. 
I do it because I have ingested the word. And I am bound to declare the entire counsel of the word of God. There are parts of the word of God that when we first taste it, they're sweet. But as we digest it, it becomes bitter. Even in our personal life, as we digest this, it's sweet. And then we, we find out that we're not following the word as we should do. And it becomes bitter in our stomach because we know we're doing wrong. But you can't know you're doing wrong if you haven't digested it in the first place. As I said, it's not just about knowing. There are many people who are going to a Christless eternity that know these scriptures, but they haven't digested them. They don't live them because they've digested it and it's a part of their body, a part of who they are. That's what these scriptures need to be to us, a part of us. You know, it makes me sick to think about how terrible the destiny of those who reject the love of God is. But the principle illustrated here in this little scroll is very instructive. It means that it's only as we personally enter into the teachings of God that we will then be prepared to speak with impact to others. It's only as we personally enter into the teachings of God that we'll be prepared to speak with impact to others. It's only after the word of God has become part of us that we can speak the truth. And so having been given the sweetness of the message of redemption, we must now preach the bitterness to many peoples and nations and languages and kings a bitterness of rejecting God's redemptive plan. It is sweet and bitter. Is this what's happening in your life? Have you taken this scroll, this book, and have you ingested it to the point where it is part of you, that it is showing in you, and every decision you make, you make because the Word of God says that? That's how we live because it's part of us? Or is it just something that you, you own and you know and you read but never put it into action? In closing, I just want to read Ezekiel. Just one verse, chapter 3, verse 18. It brings us home to me and it brings it home to any of us who are Christians who need to ingest the book. Because verse 18 in chapter 3 of Ezekiel says, When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you, not, you, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Sobering words as we eat the word of God for ourselves, as we take it on board and as we share the bitterness of its story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that we have the picture in our minds right now of a scroll. A scroll that you have asked John to to eat. Father, we know only too well that it's not that he took the scroll and ate the, the parchment, but that, Father, the words written in that scroll became a part of him as he digested every word, as it became his life, as what he eats becomes a part of his life. Father, we pray that for us. We just don't want to know the word. We, we don't want to just uh, read it. We want to live it. And the only way we can live it and have the power to be able to know the sweetness and the bitterness is to take it in personally. Lord, maybe there's some here this morning who maybe knows the word but doesn't live it. Lord, I pray for them. I pray by your spirit that you would guide and direct and help. But also pray for those here this morning who have never accepted our Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, as for their payment for sin. And Lord, I pray for them with all our hearts, with all our minds, that Father, your Spirit may reach into their lives, pull the scales from their eyes and uh, open up their hearts to the message of the Gospel. Lord, we know that the evil one is the one that uh, blankets the truth. I pray that you would prepare the fertile mind of those here this morning who do not know you, that the truth will have a way in and that Satan would have no way of stopping the seeds of the truth from being planted and growing. And Father, we ask these things knowing that you and you alone are the one that draws people to yourself. You and you alone are the only one that saves. You and you alone are the only one that can change hearts. But Father, you have given us the job of sharing your word to those people. We ask that we would do it diligently. And we ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.